0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. We're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for the beauty of your word, the, the deliciousness of your word, the inerrancy of your word, the necessity of your word, its sufficiency, its clarity, We just thank you for all the qualities of your word. Your word, there's nothing wrong with your word. The problem's with us. And we pray, Lord, that you would move in us to help us to understand it, to be moved by it, to be transformed by it. We thank you that every time we gather, we actually get to hear from you, our God, that you want to speak to your children. So we're excited for that. Lord, I come before you too, and I just ask for the covenant promises of Ezekiel 36, that you would cleanse us from idols, That you would take our heart of stone and you'd make it a living heart that beats for you. And that you would fill us with your spirit. You promised all those things in the new covenant and we we come before you eager to receive them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, we're going to be in a series in Romans. Take a look at chapter 6. That's where we're going to be. What we're looking at is we're looking at how do we get freed from habitual sin? That's really what this is about. This section is about how does Jesus set us free from habitual sin? How does his death and resurrection set us free? And when you talk to Christians, or if you've been around Christians long enough, you'll see kind of three main approaches to habitual sin. One of the approaches to habitual sin is what I like to call the stop it approach. The stop it approach relies completely on willpower. The stop it approach sounds like somebody tells you their sin and you say, you call yourself a Christian? Yeah. Stop it. You need to stop. Well, I'm having a hard time. Well, you need to stop that. Well, it's a real temptation. Well, you need to knock it off. You call yourself a Christian, you should be able to do this. That's what I did. I stopped it, and you should stop it like I did, right? That's the stop it approach. It's legalistic. It relies on willpower alone for freedom, and as we all know, willpower is is no place to camp everything you've got. Um, the second approach is the kind of the claimant approach. This expects God to remove habitual sin without any effort of your own, Okay. And so this is, you know, expect God for a miracle, pray for it. He's just going to remove this thing, you know, just ask him. It's the let go, let God approach where you don't really have to do anything. You just have to keep asking. At some point, he's going to remove this habitual sin problem that if you just have the right person pray for you, if you just have the right religious experience, your sin's just going to fall off you. Like one of these, you know, 20-day diet things where the fat just falls off, right? Your habitual sin's just one day going to fall off, you know, because you had some sort of experience. The claimant approach is simplistic. It expects God to remove your habitual sin with no effort of your own. Another common approach, and both of these are not right, by the way. This third one's not right either. There's the accepted approach, okay? Accept it. This doesn't expect a whole lot of freedom in this life. It doesn't expect a whole lot of freedom from habitual sin. I've often heard the accept it way of thinking about it in men's ministries. When you talk about pornography, people kind of pat each other on the back and they say, oh, you know, you know, every man does it. No, they don't. <laughs> they don't. We don't all do it. But there's this idea of this is something that every man struggles with. And it's kind of a sin management type deal. You kind of redefine what freedom is. So freedom isn't what it sounds like. And you redefine sin often. You know, you tell like I got a struggle. I got a personality problem, different things like that. It's sin management. It's trying to keep your sin just under some certain acceptable limit that apparently you set for yourself, that as long as it doesn't get kind of out of control, that I'm doing right. Um, The accepted approach is fatalistic, guys it doesn't expect god to do a whole lot in your life. Romans 7 is often used to justify the accepted approach, you know. People read Romans 7 and they'll say, "See, this is what the Christian life is like." When we get to Romans 7, you'll see that is not what Romans 7 is saying. It's not saying that you should expect some level of slavery to sin in your life. In this series in Romans 6 through 8, we're going to learn how to stop accepting slavery to sin and learn how to kill it by spirit-empowered effort, okay? What we see in Romans 6 through 8 is spirit-empowered effort. It's not stop it, because it's not just your willpower. It's the Holy Spirit helping you. But it's also not accepting it. And it's not claim it, because you're actually taking part in what the Spirit's doing. Dallas Willard taught this really helpful acronym for what we're going to go through over the next few weeks. And it's VIM, V-I-M. So it's vision, intention, and means. So it turns out to really kind of move forward in sanctification, you have to have a proper vision for sanctification. You need to have a biblical vision of what God has done to set you free from habitual sin, and we're going to look at that tonight here in Romans six, one through fourteen. And then you need a, a an intention to change. Okay, that's repentance, right? We need an intention to change. That's the I. We're going to look at that next week at the second half of Romans six. And then you need the right means. You need to rely on the right power. Now Romans seven is going to show us kind of if you do this, you will fail consistently. And then we're looking to look at Romans 8, where it actually shows us the means to freedom. So V-I-M, VIM, proper vision, biblical vision, uh, a real intention to change, and then taking the right means, relying on the right power for change. And this is super helpful, guys, for yourself or for anyone that you're counseling. If you're in a situation where, you know, you're stalled or they're stalled and, and they're kind of falling back into habitual sin, it's very likely that it's one of those three areas. Could be in the area of vision. Do I really believe the freedom that's offered to me in Romans 6? Do I really believe it? Do I really believe that vision or its intention? Do I really intend on leaving my sin behind? I think we can all think about times when we didn't intend on leaving it. You know, That's a really important thing. We're going to look at that next week. And then means, am I fighting it by the right power? So that's kind of the outline of the next few weeks. So we're, here we are in Romans 6, and it starts with a question, a really interesting question. Take a look at verse 1. Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul's dealing with a question that could arise from the way he talks about the gospel. So in chapter 5 and verse 20, take a look at it, he said, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So Paul knows that his talk of unlimited grace for believers is gonna make some people kind of nervous. Okay? When you talk about like where there's more sin, more grace abounds. That's gonna freak people out. Okay? Have you ever been freaked out by that kind of talk? You know, people would say to Paul things like you know, if you talk like that, Paul, people are just going to sin more. You know, if they, don't, if they don't think there's kind of a limit to this grace, they're going to sin all the more. You've got to set limits on God's grace. It makes them very nervous. Martin Lloyd Jones, a famous preacher in the 20th century, he said that getting this question, what shall we say? Shall we, shall we sin The grace may abound? Getting that kind of question of your preaching is a sign that you're actually preaching the gospel correctly that the gospel should put forward such an offer of unlimited grace that people should go like, okay, this is a little disturbing. This makes me a little nervous. And Paul anticipates their objection. He's thinking that they're probably saying, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And look at Paul's answer. He, of course, says no. He says, by no means should we continue in sin to have more and more grace. He says in the strongest possible way. But what else does he say? Look at verse 2 how can we who have died to sin still live in it? That's an interesting answer. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, of course you shouldn't keep sinning because grace is going to run out. He doesn't say that, right? No, Paul says to the answer of, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, we can't because something happened to us. That it turns out that God did something to you when you came to Christ that you just can't continue in sin. You know, he says that as his answer. He says, how can we have died to sin, still live in it? Because guys, the the unlimited grace that you have in Christ is not just unlimited grace to forgive you. It's also grace to free you. Grace does more than just forgive. It also frees us. Sometimes you hear people and they're concerned about somebody's teaching being way too grace heavy. They'll say, oh, you know, there's too much, focus is too much on grace. That somehow we need to be careful not to emphasize grace too much. That's actually not the real issue. Because God's grace is unlimited and endless, and it both forgives us and frees us, right? The real issue is, what does grace do? It not only forgives us, it also frees us. It not only forgives us, it also empowers us. So God's grace is his undeserved acceptance and forgiveness, and God's grace is his undeserved help to be freed from sin. Grace includes both of those. So we can't really be excessive about grace because it's unlimited to believers. We're we're living in his grace. But we need to emphasize the fact that it does both. It forgives us and frees us. Grace empowers our efforts. God gives us empowering grace. And look at how he does it. Take a look at verse 3. The way that God gives us this grace to transform us, to change us, to free us from slavery to sin is through our union with Christ. Look at verse 3. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will no longer die. Death has no dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. And the life he lives, he lives to God. When you became a Christian, if you guys are, those of you who are believers, when you became a Christian, you actually got united to Jesus. You got connected to Jesus. That's what this passage is about. Do you see the union with Christ language? Take a look at your version of the Bible there. Look at verse two. It says that you have been baptized into Christ Jesus. This is a way of speaking of union with Christ. Just like a person when they're wet is connected to that water, you're connected to Christ. You are as bonded to Christ as a wet person is to water. Or look at verse 5. He says that you are united with Christ. Or verse 11 says that you're in Christ. That, that term, in Christ, is always talking about union with Christ. Your union, guys, with Christ has three aspects. It's spiritual, it's legal, and it's organic. And I feel like every time I talk about union with Christ, I just want to come and each one of you shake you and shake you and shake you and, shake you and make sure you're hearing me because I feel like I went decades And I'm sure that they preached about union with Christ, and I didn't think about it. I didn't believe it. I didn't know it. You're connected to Jesus, okay? And I hope you get this. So really focus. There's something here. If you're not like, oh, I love it when he talks about union with Christ, you probably don't know about it yet, okay? So really, like, do whatever you have to do. Like, you know, kind of shake it a little bit, shake yourself. Okay. Can't shake all of you. Okay. So union with Christ, your union with Christ is spiritual. What does that mean? You're union united with Christ by means of the Holy Spirit. Last week on Easter, we saw how Mary physically clinged to Jesus. You're not physically united with Christ. You're spiritually united with him, but you're united with him by the Holy Spirit. So your union with Christ is not a metaphor. It's not a symbol. It's real because the Holy Spirit is not a metaphor. Okay. Holy Spirit is a real person. And what he's doing is he's in you and he's connected to Christ in heaven. You are literally really united to Jesus in heaven by the Holy Spirit. I feel like you guys are getting it. I can see it on your faces. And so he links us. Older authors talked about that the Holy Spirit acts as an umbilical cord to connect us to Christ. So, we are always firmly attached to Jesus by the Holy Spirit. That's how Paul can talk about in Ephesians that we're part of his body, that we're one with him. We really are one with him, not physically, but by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, your union with Christ is legal. It's a legal union, like marriage, like the one flesh union in marriage. Everything that he has is yours, and everything that you have is his, it's community property okay? It's community property. So all his righteousness is yours because you're united with him, like in a marriage where you share community property. All of his righteousness is yours because you're united to him. And all of your sin was his on the cross because of your union with him. You see how union with him, it it does everything, right? Because of our legal union with Jesus, all of his assets are ours and all of his liabilities are his, and it doesn't work the other way. We had no assets and he had no liabilities, okay? This is not a great deal for him, but he took us on. Unite us to himself. So it's, it's spiritual union, it's legal union, and it's an organic unit. Organic meaning life, okay? You're connected to Jesus such that his life flows through you, comes through you, his actual life. John 15 talks about this organic union that we're like these dead branches and Jesus is this living vine, And we, when we were born again, united, grafted into Jesus so that his life, his actual life flowed into us, regenerated us, brought us to life. And then what his life does in us now is causes that dead branch to come to life and little leaves. And then there's fruit that grows on there, right? The fruit of the spirit, like in Galatians 5. And that's all his life flowing through you. Isn't that amazing? So that your life isn't an imitation of Christ's life. Your life is is Christ's life. Christ's life is in you. Okay. I hope you're getting that. It's like his life is flowing through your spiritual veins. And that's how we can live increasingly free from slavery to sin. So all the benefits of salvation, guys, come from being united to Christ. All the benefits of chapters one through five, when we talk about justification, all that, that came from being united to Christ. And then as we look forward from six, seven, and eight, we're going to see that his life flowing in us, our sanctification, our being made new, is a gift from being united with Christ. Isn't that cool? So when you got united with Christ, you got all of Christ. You got all of his righteousness before God, and you got all of his wonderful, amazing, beautiful life in you. So what this is about, sanctification, is about learning how to more and more receive that life. Okay, It's like you have in your own person a well bubbling up of the life of Jesus. And somehow we need to be going to that well and scooping that life into ourselves, right? That it doesn't happen entirely automatically and that we need to abide in him. And so this section shows us how union with Christ gives us new life. And he does it in two ways. He talks about how we've died to sin and how we're alive to God. So you, and it's so interesting the way Paul talks, he goes, because of your union with Christ, you're so united with him that his death on the cross actually in some way made you dead to sin. You can see that in verse 2. He says that you are dead to sin. He says in verse 6 that your old self was crucified. Sounds thorough. In verse 6, it says that the body of sin, your body of sin was brought to nothing. It says in verse 6 also that you no longer need to be enslaved to sin. It says in verse 7 that you've been set free from sin. Now, I don't want to give you the wrong idea. We're never going to be sinless in this life. Anybody ever kind of felt like they were almost there? Okay, probably not, right? It's weird that there are beliefs about that. Perfectionism, somehow you could become perfect and all that. There was this guy that was going on and on about this, and this is in the 1800s, and it was like at this bed and breakfast, and Spurgeon was staying there too, a famous preacher, and he's going on and on about perfectionism, and then he got in there. So the story goes, he walked up behind him and like poured his soup on him to see, and uh, he wasn't yet Perfect. Okay, he didn't even pass the soup test. First John 1.8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is in us. So what I'm not saying is you're going to be sinless. But what Romans 6 does say is that you don't have to be enslaved or practice any particular sin. Okay, those are different things. We're talking about habitual sin. We're talking about being enslaved to a particular sin. We're talking about being well practiced in a particular sin. You don't have to do that you can be freed from that by the power of your union with Christ. So we're dead to sin. And then the next part is, is that we're, because we're united with Christ, when he was resurrected, somehow that resurrection power is now in us, right? We're so truly united to Jesus that his resurrection caused us to go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Look at verse four. He says, he says that you have newness of life, okay? Jesus' resurrected life regenerated you. You weren't born spiritually alive. None of us are. Ephesians 2 says that we're born spiritually dead. And what happened was he regenerated you by uniting you with Jesus such that his life now flows in you, brought you to spiritual life. Jesus actually lives in you. And this means that you're able to more and more express his beautiful life. Because guys, righteousness and holiness and the things that God has for you in Christ is a lot more than what you don't do. (laughs) It's a lot more than not sinning. You know, no one looks at Jesus' life and say, oh, what a beautiful life. Look how much he didn't sin. No, that was the foundation. But then there was this beautiful life of service and love to others, right? He had this beautiful life, and that's the life we have. Verse seven says that you have been set free. You've been set free. Now, the world tells us that to be apart from Christ is to be free, but that's not true. That's actual slavery, right? True freedom, guys, is the desire to do what's right and the ability to do it. Okay. True freedom is to have the desire to do what is right and the ability to do it. And that's something that he gives us because we're united to Christ. Verse 11 says that you have been made alive to God. I love that. You've been made alive to God. So you were dead to God before. You had no interest in him. You know, maybe when people brought the Lord up, if you were, got converted kind of older and you, you remember these things, you might've been annoyed when people brought up Christ. You might've been angry. You might've just wanted to change the subject. You were dead to him, right? But it says here that you've been made alive to God. You have desire for him now. You have a hunger for him now. You know, you, you, you can only taste the things you actually have taste buds for. And what happened in regeneration when you came to Christ is you were given taste buds all over your soul for God and a hunger for him, a desire for him. And it's that desire that you have for him, that craving that you have to be close to God is the thing that actually changes us. That we we love him and we want him, and we want to be near him, and the more we're near him, the more we become like him. So how do you actually experience this? okay, Because I said all that stuff, and I think one of the things you could be thinking is, well, let me ask you this, Have you noticed that it doesn't happen automatically? what I just described? Have you noticed? have you noticed it didn't happen automatically when you came to Christ, you were automatically justified, you're automatically made righteous before God, but the life thing, sanctification doesn't happen automatically. It's actually a long, painful, embarrassing process. Is it an embarrassing process? Have you found sanctification embarrassing? I know you guys found painful and long. Has it been embarrassing? Spouses, have you found your spouse's sanctification to be long and painful? Yes, you have. You don't want to answer that one, right? But it's something we have to learn to do. You know, Jesus calls us his disciples, disciples learner, that we're learning to do all the things Christ has commanded, By the power of the Holy Spirit. It's something we have to learn to do. It's not automatic. And that's why Paul wrote Romans 6 is like, it turns out that we need to know that we're united with Christ. Like that actually helps. It actually helps to know you're united with Christ. Like you have to know about it. You could not know. Look at verse 3. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized in his death? He's like, Did you know about this? Did you know about this? When you came here, did you know about this? I feel like this is something that's just amazing. It's like a secret. It's just like hidden plainly in scripture. And all of a sudden you find out and you're like, I'm united to Christ. This is amazing. You not only have to know about it, but you have to act on it. It turns out that his union with Christ is something we have to act on. And that's why Romans 6 is written. There are actually three commands here in Romans 6. Do you see them? Take a look at verses 1 through 14. There's actually three commands here. And the first command is really interesting. The first command that's associated with union with Christ is to believe it. It's an interesting command. Look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is an interesting first command, right? First command is believe this, consider it, think about it. Isn't that cool? You like a command to think about something? Like think about this, dwell on it, consider it you know, and the reason why we need to start there and not start with like, okay, I'm going to go fight my sin. We need to first start with like, consider yourself dead to sin. Consider yourself united to Jesus. The reason why we need to start there and not just march off trying to solve things is our hope is in him. Our power needs to come from him. It's like Paul's saying like, not so fast. They're like, okay, what do we do? Not so fast did you really hear about union with Christ? Okay. You need to really consider yourself. Somehow you need to remind yourself. And I don't know if this is a note or what, what you do, but you got to remind yourself every day. You're united with Jesus, right? Anytime I'm like freaked out about doing this, you know what I do? I had this thing that just like clicked in my head years ago where I went, I don't do this by myself. I just have to like go up there and he's going to talk through me. You know, like I'm not going up there alone because I am deathly afraid of public speaking naturally. So don't try to give me any teaching engagements anywhere else. Deathly afraid of public speaking naturally. But there was a time when all of a sudden I went like, oh, so he's going to speak through me. Like, I'm united with Christ. Like, Christ is in heaven right now and the Holy Spirit is so connecting me that his life flows through me right now. Like, there's nothing to worry about here, right? It's awesome. So you got to consider it because it's possible to be free and not know it, okay? It's possible to be free and not know it. Um, I was born on Juneteenth. June 19th, and, uh, which is a really cool day to be born because that was the anniversary of the announcement of the Emancipation Proclamation in Texas, and it's become more of a holiday as time has gone on. But there was a need to announce freedom, right? People needed to know it. It's one thing to have a proclamation signed, It's another thing for you to actually know that you're free. You could be free and not know it. And so this freedom needs to be announced to every believer. You know, they need to see Romans 6. It's also possible to be freed and not believe it. You remember when we were in Exodus, um, Moses came and he told the people that, he was gonna set them, that God was going to set them free. Do you remember what their response was? Exodus 6, 9 says, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. They were so beat down, they thought it was impossible. Isn't that amazing? How about you? I would imagine in a group this size, when you hear stuff like that, you go, yeah, 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 I've heard that before. Like, that's not possible. Not for me. I've been beat down too long by this particular pattern of sin that there's just no way to be free from it. That is exactly what Satan, your slave master, wants. That is exactly what Pharaoh wants for you, is to feel so beat down by it and not be able to believe you could be set free. What I'm asking you to do today is not to believe me that you can be free. Believe Romans 6, okay? Romans 6 is explicit. And you could go, yeah, 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 but there's Romans 7. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. I'll tell you right now, it does not counteract Romans 6. Not like, hey, you're free. No, you're not. No, that's not what he does. I'm asking you today to believe Romans 6. Don't believe me. And if you think, hey, you know, I think you oversold it. Go and read it yourself. I clearly didn't. This passage is so explicit about the kind of freedom you can have in Christ that, you know, I know you probably tried many times to be set free from a t- particular sin or everything, but he, just believe Romans 6 and why don't you just go with us in this series and why don't you just see if maybe there was a hang up somewhere, you know, maybe it was in vision, maybe it was in intention, maybe it was the means you were using, okay? Maybe, you know, you weren't doing it fully in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? So that's, that's what I'm asking from, from me today. So you could be free and not know it. You know that whole baby elephant thing? I don't know if it's true. You hear the baby elephant story? You take like the baby elephant and you tie it to a little stake and it like pulls and it pulls and it can't get away. And then when it's big, you put it in the same stake and it doesn't move. Have you heard this? Anybody know if that's true? Anybody check the web and see? No, I'm just kidding. No, let's not do that. But it's that kind of a thing, right? Where you've struggled against the sin over and over again and you and you think that you can't be set free. And really you can in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we'll talk more next few weeks. But Satan, your old slave master, who you don't belong to anymore, wants doesn't want you to believe that you're free in Christ. He loves to keep you thinking like a slave. And so the first command here is consider, believe it. Spend a lot of time there. Spend a lot of time. Don't move on from there too soon. Second one is in verse 12. Don't let sin reign. Look at it. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Okay. So this shows us where to start. Because when you're thinking like sanctification, you're thinking of walking in freedom from various sins. Like we sin all the time. Every day, there's sins throughout the day. He's very specific here. He wants you to look for where it rains, okay? So you want to look for a sin? You want to look at one that's raining. One that you're, you're always under. One that you're, verse two says, living in, right? The sin that you're well-practiced in. Okay? The one that you got lots of practice in, the one that you got a lot of familiarity with, the one that you can think of that was dominant this week, where is sin raining? He says, Don't let it rain. Okay? He's not talking about like, you know, he's saying focus your efforts where it rains. And so where is it raining? I want you to think about this for yourself. Is it raining in your anger? Is sin raining in lies? Is sin raining in your discontentment? Is sin reigning in pornography in your life? Is sin reigning in your fear? It's a tricky one, right? Is sin reigning in your resentments? You know, do you have grudges that you nurse? Like that term nursing, nursing a grudge? That you feed every day. Is it reigning in your resentments? Is it reigning in your greed? Is it reigning in your cynicism? You know, cynicism is not a spiritual gift. It looks like it is, but it's not. Is it reigning in your pride? Is it reigning in your lust? Is it raining in your joylessness? Did you know that's a problem? There's tons of commands to rejoice in the Lord. Is it raining in your joylessness? You're like, you're making me even sadder telling me that. But this is something that the Lord wants to free you from, your joylessness. Is it raining in your gossip? Is it raining in your unforgiveness? Is it raining in your ingratitude? You should really think about that. Think about that for a minute. Where is sin raining in your life? And what I want you to do right now, and I'm serious about this, text yourself. Do you know you can text yourself? Text yourself right now, while I'm talking, text yourself where sin is raining in your life. Be careful you text yourself. This could get real awkward. I think it's good to confess sin, but that would be a weird way to do it. Text it to yourself. Seriously, during this series, come up with a plan with a friend. I think you should confess this thing to a friend, right? And come up with a plan to systematically kill this sin that's raining in your life. That has to be what he means here when he says, don't let it rain. You figure out what it is. And then you get with a Christian friend and you come up with a plan to systematically kill this. Come up with a heart goal for the rest of this year. And you write a sentence. By the end of 2021, I want to be the kind of person who is no longer living in slavery to blank. What is it? You know. And I know the first thing that comes to mind is the right one. And it's the one you're going to say, that one's too hard. You're like, I'll do a different one. The first one was the right one. Okay? The first one that felt impossible, that was the one. It's not the one that you're like, oh, I got a more manageable one I could work on. No. Go with the first one you thought of, all right? And text it to yourself and and confess it. Confess it to someone and come up with a plan with a Christian friend. Don't let it rain. If you let it rain, guys, you're choosing to let it rain, okay? And that's what next week is about, second half of Romans 6, where we talk about intention. Do we tend to be free? Don't let it rain. And then the third one, present yourself to Jesus. Take a look at verse 13. Do not present your members, talking about our bodies and everything that's inside too. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Every day we give our our heads and our hearts and our hands to either be used by sin or to be used by our Savior. Right? Every single day we do this. Every single day we've got this life, we've got this body, we've got this mind, we've got this heart, we've got our thoughts and our feelings and all these things. And we present them every day, either for sin or for our Savior's use. This is like instruments, right? That you're an instrument and you're saying, yeah, go ahead, take my life, use me this way. What he's saying here is that we need to consciously make a decision to hand over ourselves to God every day. And I think we need to actually do this, okay? So whether that happens in the morning when you first wake up or it happens on your commute, on your drive in, you don't wait till you're too far into it. another time to get it to happen to be at the end of the day, you know, if you're returning home uh, to do it then, or if you're at home to do it then. But we present ourselves, we consciously make a decision to present ourselves to God to live through. I mean, if we're united to Christ such that his life can flow through us, it makes a lot of sense for us to actually say, Jesus, do that thing, okay? A uh, I want to abide in you today. I want you to live in me. Jesus said in John 15, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. A lot of times we think that that means in the Greek, like you can do a few things, but nothing actually in the Greek means nothing. So apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Nothing of value, nothing good, nothing eternally valuable, right? Jesus didn't just say, imitate me. He said, abide in me. Those are different, right? We do imitate him. But we imitate him with his life in us, right? So we need to abide in him. We have an opportunity, guys, not just to have a life that's like Jesus's, but to have Jesus's actual life through us, and that's amazing. That's really amazing. This mentor, he went uh, to be with the Lord a few years ago. Now he was like in his eighties, and. Just an amazing guy. His name was Will Wyatt. And he did these, uh, he had a cool cowboy name. He wasn't much of a cowboy, I don't think, but he had a ranch. But anyway, he did college ministry well into his 80s. Super cool guy. And he would reach out every time he came back for the winter. He would say, hey, let's meet up. And he was super big on abiding in Christ, which we all should be. But he really was. And I asked him what his prayers were like, like in the morning and in the middle of the day and like in the evening. And this is what he told me. He, these are the kind of prayers he would pray. He would pray, Lord. You've given me this new day. I'm handing over control of my thoughts today. Give me your thoughts for people. Make me think what you think about them. And this actually is a real thing. I mean, in the New Testament, Paul says, I have the affections of Christ for you. And he's not just saying things. Like he had Christ's actual affections for people. And so he says, believing in the union with Christ, you say, give me your thoughts for people today, make me think what you think about them. And they would say, I'm handing over my emotions today. Give me your emotions for the people around me today. Make me feel as you feel for them. is that cool? Isn't that helpful? He said stuff like, I'm handing over my eyes today. It went on and on. I'm handing over my eyes today. Help me to see people the way you see them. I'm handing over my ears today. Help me to hear people the way you hear them. I'm handing over my words today. Give me your words to speak to everyone I talk to today. I'm handing over my body to you. Jesus live in, th- in and through my body. And then he said, this is really important. He'd always say, and when I stop abiding in you, show me. So that I'll come back once again and ask for this. If I, if I stray from that spirit of abiding, please show me and lead me back. What was he doing? He's basically praying to have Galatians 2.20 be a reality. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Did you know anything like that was even available? How cool is that, right? that we would abide in him, that we would draw our strength in our life from him. And so that's the first piece that we're going to look at in Vim. That's the vision, right? That to fight habitual sin, we need to believe in our union with Christ and that we're dead to sin. We need to identify where sin reigns, make up a plan of resistance, and we need to present ourselves regularly for Christ to live through. not that awesome? It's such a cool passage. What about verse 14, though? Take a look at verse 14. Is verse 14 a command? Is that a fourth command? Take a look at it. It's open book. I don't see enough eyes looking down. So even if you don't have a Bible in your hands, just look down, and I'll think you're you're doing it. It Doesn't make me feel better. Is verse fourteen a command? Is it? You said no, not a command. Do you guys? Anyone think it's a command? Okay, now everybody's like, this is unsafe. Okay, you're right. It is not a command. Take a listen to it. So there's things called imperatives; those are commands, and there's things called indicatives, which are things that are. Okay. And usually in the Bible, there are things that God has done, is doing, will do. They're, they're just for sure. Okay. And then there's imperatives, which are like, these are things you should do. Listen to it. It's not a command. He says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. It's not a command. What is it? It's a promise. Isn't that so cool? It's a parting promise. Did you need one of those? I needed one of those. That's super cool. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful, Lord. We're thankful for this gift that we have to be united to your son, Jesus. We're thankful for the righteousness that's his, that's now ours, that we didn't earn, and yet you reward us for. This is amazing. And we thank you, too, that we have this opportunity to live a life with you living through us. And, Lord, we don't know how to do that, but we see some instructions here, and there's a whole lot of practice involved, and... We know we have a lot to learn, and uh, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to learn this. Lord, help us to really believe in our union with Christ, and help us to be experimental with it, to every day see how much we could experience your son's life through us, that we would ask for it, that we repent of trying to take control back, that we would just really experimentally experience what you have for us in this passage. We just pray that you'd make it real to us. And I thank you for everyone here that's come out to worship you. Pray for anybody here that's not a believer. Lord, I pray that you would give them a desire to have this. This is another aspect of the good news that maybe they've never heard of. And I just pray, Lord, that even while we're singing, that they would reach out to you and ask you for it. And I know you'll give it to them because... They wouldn't be asking for it unless you had reached out to them. It's clearly your will to give it. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going
1: to go ahead and take communion together. And I thought, just to change it up a little bit, would you stand with me to take communion this week? Um, I thought we would stand looking at what communion is. In uh, Luke, Luke tells us about the first communion. And he says, and when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And that's what we're doing in communion. We are remembering the cross, right? Primarily remembering the cross remembering the body that was broken for us. We're remembering the blood that was shed for our sin to forgive us. And if you're trusting in that, we invite you to take this with us as a family. And parents, we're trusting you that you've talked with your kids about communion, and they know that it's not just snack time, and they know that they are, are partaking with us. And we welcome them to, to join us in taking communion as a family. Um, At that first communion, Jesus promised not to drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And as we look back and remember that first communion, we also look forward, right? We look forward to this life that we have, the life we have now connected with Christ, right? United with Christ, but at some point we will see him face to face. We will share in a resurrection like his, right? And I love the picture in Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25 says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food and marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Amen. Amen. Um, these are the instructions that were given in that first uh, to the early church in that first communion. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us eat the bread together. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the cup together. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful Uh, not only um, for the blood that you shed, for not only the body that was broken for us, Lord, but we're thankful that you have not left us to battle sin on our own, Lord. You've not left us alone just to accept our sin, Lord, but you are continuing to pour your Spirit um, in our hearts and our lives, allowing us to walk in this newness of life. And we pray, Lord, even over these next few weeks, Lord, that this um, would be life-changing for us, Lord, that those, that those sins that we have been uh, enslaved to for so long, uh, that we would be freed from those. We know that you can do this. We trust you to do it. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our
0: church, you can email us at info at covgracemenifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.